Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris, and I am once again with my friend Paul Bloom. Paul, thank you for joining me. Hey, Sam. Good to talk to you. We've been making a, a habit of this. This is fun. This is a lot of fun, and and I just want to. So I'm, I'm Paul Bloom. Everybody knows who you are, but I'm Paul Bloom, professor of psychology at Yale University, and I want to sort of start by continuing a conversation we were having, you know, just just now, and we've been having over the last little while. Well, I'm going to try to get you to say something nice about Trump. And I figured out the way to do it. Put it this way. Are you ready for it? Yeah, well, I'm bracing myself because this is a heavy lift emotionally and ethically, spiritually. Well, I'm not, I'll reassure you, I'm not going to ask you to say anything like he's a decent person or he has any positive moral qualities. It's a different line. So here's how it goes. Imagine a competition that starts off with a lot of people, a thousand, a hundred gradually whittles down to a dozen. And these are extremely motivated people. They're accomplished. Some of them have extremely strong records of success. And they're seeking after probably the most sought-after prize in the world. Hmm. And they have a competition that lasts a year, at least many, many months. This is seeming vaguely familiar. And it is vaguely familiar, that's right. Not a hypothetical. Not yeah. a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they, they, they battle independently. But there's a lot of face-to-face confrontations where they're in a room and a million people are watching them. Yeah. And it's a zero-sum game. It can only be one winner. Yeah. And after a long, savage battle, this guy who actually had never competed before, who had no, no, no reasonable qualifications for it, wins. So as you've twigged on, I'm talking about the Republican primaries, and I'm talking about Trump winning. Now, I'm less impressed that he won the election. Once you get to an election in this country, it's a coin toss. You know, half the people are going to vote for the Republican, half for the Democrat, and you're fighting for the smidgen of undecideds. Mm. But doesn't it say something extraordinary about him that he won? I can give you some of what you're asking for, I think. Yes, he, he clearly has an understanding of television that his opponents didn't have, even though they're all, they were all professional politicians, and some of them are just anti-charismatic. I mean, he's, he was up against Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush, people who didn't have a stage presence and couldn't be trained to have one, apparently. And you add to that his experience as a showman, really, you know, as a reality TV impresario, mm-hmm. mostly. Again, I go back to my evil Chauncey Gardner thesis, yeah. which is the responsibility for his success really isn't in him. It's more in the environment. It's in the electorate's relationship to fame and having seen someone on television so much. He was, in fact, one of the most famous people on earth, even though he was kind of a Rodney Dangerfield character in the business community. But he's one of the most recognizable people, more so than his opponents. But that's the environment. I mean, I guess I should remind people not everyone knows the reference because I'm old, but Chauncey Gardner was this character in the Jersey Kosinski novel, Being There, which became that film starring Peter Sellers. And he was a gardener who happened to be a moron, but he was overheard saying aphoristic things like, in the spring, new flowers always bloom or something like that. And, And this was mistaken for political wisdom and then through the course of events, he winds up being an advisor to the president. But so in that case, it's, it's totally clear that the audience is in on the joke. They realize he's a moron, albeit a wholly well-intentioned one. And 
it's all of the projection and misapprehension and confusion in the environment that winds up promoting him to a position of power. And when I look at Trump, when I look at the things that he's done that have been so successful, like, you know, chanting locker up at his rallies, right? Now, was that a brilliant act of political persuasion? Was he playing 4D chess with the electorate? Or did it just happen to work given the political attitudes and moral attitudes of 40% of America? And I think it's the latter. I mean, I think he literally could have said almost anything ugly and authoritarian and sexist. He could have said, and I'm just going to now spitball from the ugliest part of my male imagination. He could have said, I wouldn't want to see her naked. I'll tell you that. You know, keep your clothes on, Hillary. Then people would be chanting, keep your clothes on, right? I think he actually did say, he was talking about her, I think, going to the bathroom at some point in one of the debates and, and, you know, the crowd went wild at the very thought of it. Maybe I've repressed that moment. Yeah. I don't see lock her up as a brilliant political move. I don't even see it as a move. It's more of him that allows him to show up as a kind of super stimulus to 40% of America. I mean, there's something so cartoonish about him, and, it, and he has the power of a cartoon. And now you, you've got me on another anti-Trump rant here. <laughs> this is, but, so I once said he was like a golem that had been conjured by every bad thing that had ever been said about America. It's like the physical manifestation of everyone's external judgments of just what the ugly American is like. But it is something like that. I mean, if you took professional wrestling and McDonald's French fries and the NRA and infomercials about bogus products that don't work, and you just mix them all together and you stick them in the back of a tacky white limousine and you drive it around Central Park 500 times, you open the door, out would step Donald Trump. He's the confection of all of that American crap. And for whatever reason, that apotheosis of all that is wrong with us, all that is just self-regarding and obtuse, that works for 40% of America at this moment in American history. So it's a kind of perverse power. He's got the whatever, you know, that, uh, what, what was the, I don't really follow the Avengers movies, but the, um, what was that glove with all the stones that Josh Brolin was trying to get? Yeah. Thanos. Uh, yeah, Thanos yeah. with his glove. I mean, he's, he's got the <laughs> stones of fucking hypocrisy and narcissism. And, you know, he's working on the banality of evil. And eventually he will have all the power in the universe when everything goes wrong. So I have really failed in my quest <laughs> so, to get you to so, say so something that, nice is that, about it. Is that what you were hoping for? It has backfired horrendously. So here, here's your counter-analysis as I see it. My analysis is, he has some skills in that he knows what to say to enrage many people, including you and me, and to delight so many others. Face-to-face in a debate, he'll go, he'll be savage and cruel and comic and funny in a way that other people can't. And, and he'll yes. go places other people won't go. And these abilities, these, these dark abilities, are a large part of why he's president now. I think your analysis is more like, I can't, I can't reiterate your, your, your beautiful description, but somehow he spawned. Somehow he was born and, mm. and, he, and he developed. And now you have this creature with this, this disgusting, degrading manner, which 
bizarrely is strangely appealing. And he gets no credit for it. It's just the way he is. Maybe I'll give you a little more than you have any right to expect. I can imagine, in fact, I'd be surprised if this weren't true. I can imagine that behind closed doors, I would be surprised at how he shows up. I bet he's got some level of of emotional intelligence and charisma that if only given now that he's ruler of the free world, because I've never met him, I've never seen him in person, I would imagine that the person I see on television and on stage is not the whole person. Something has to explain the fact that behind closed doors, he manages to keep anyone on his team for more than a day and a half. Though often not much longer than <laughs> yes, that's true. But but yeah, I I I think I, I agree. I, I don't think you know. I don't think when he's sitting by himself, you know, he's he's reading Dickens and and writing poetry. Wouldn't that be amazing? But that would be something. <laughs> but but I imagine that a lot of what we see is a show, and and it's a very very good show, and it's it's quite entertaining, and and I think that that he might in his personal life actually just kind of tone it down and become more of a recognizable human being. But there's something else which is a a very backhanded compliment. I think he's very good at being cruel. I think he's a very effective sadist. I feel that a lot of his vicious attacks on people, of which they number in the hundreds, if not the thousands by now, have really hurt people, have really Mm -hmm. damaged people. And I think he he has the the bully's understanding of of what will make their victim cry. He's definitely a bully, but... Again, the effectiveness of his attacks on people, the fact that it deranges their lives and you know, often causes them to have to get security or move from where they're living. I mean, it really, they're effective in really screwing people over massively. Again, that's not a sign of how cutting his or clever his names are for people or anything else he's actually tweeting. It's just the fact that he's the leader of a, a mob. He's got a dangerous personality cult behind him. And we live in an environment where if you have anything like that kind of social presence, you can just direct your mob to dox people and otherwise screw them over online. And he does that. I mean, he does it totally recklessly. You know, eventually someone's going to get killed because of one of his tweets and there'll be no recourse. He's got to know that what he does is dangerous on Twitter. I guess part of what's driving me is, is almost a version of the argument from design, where if you see something complicated, and in this case successful, you say it's unlikely to be random. So, you know, if, if we were theists, we might say, I guess God decided that Trump was this man and, and, and gave him this great fortune. But we're not theists. So I think what we should look for is some abilities, something, something going on that has caused him to do these extremely low probability things. But he, I mean, he's the distillation of the American grotesque in a way that is, you know, we have not seen before. I and mean, we saw its manifestation on reality TV for yeah. more than a decade. His theme song was, I think it was Money, 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 right? And it's just the crassness of American bullshit. If you played it with gold, that's Trump. And yet, through amazing happenstance, he managed to move it all the way into the Oval Office. And now it's there. And the juxtaposition between who he is, really, and the moral and political seriousness of trying to steer human history yeah. at this moment is an insane juxtaposition. And you know, half of the country wants to see 
every institution destabilized anyway. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is the lack of regard, the lack of respect, the lack of trust in institutions now is an all-time low, and that is, I mean, he is the personification of that change of attitude. I mean, he's ushered it in to some degree. It also was the explanation for the fact that he was able to take the stage in the first place, I would say. Yeah, I'll just say, I, 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 I agree with a lot of that. I'll just say one thing, which is that I'm sure you've had friends, I have friends too, who said they predicted this. And mm. some of them did predict it. I sure as hell didn't. And, no. and I, I bet you didn't. So whatever happened... It wasn't obvious it was going to happen. Look, so question. You and I were talking before about the Democratic debate. And right. so can I get you to say something nice about Sanders? What do you think of Sanders? <laughs> I should remind people our last podcast was recorded just before the Democratic debate in Las Vegas where Bloomberg made his first appearance. And I believe I was appropriately cautious in my... Um, my expectations for Bloomberg. We, we were both cautious. Neither yeah. one of us said Bloomberg's going to really <laughs> rip it up up there and do very well. No. So I was certainly worried about that. I am i don't know that I thought his performance was as bad as it has been said since. It was definitely bad, but you know, it, yeah. it's being viewed as just catastrophic. It, it, could, it could have been worse. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Ways in which he could have, but he, but he did very, very poorly. He could have burst into he tears. Have, he could have yeah. cried. He could yes. have, you know, shat himself. There's, yeah. there's a whole list of options which could have been worse. Yeah. But, but once you get beyond the sort of, he did very poorly, and and he yeah. did poorly in a way that I think, unfortunately, matched up with the negative view many people have of him. The truth is, that there just may not be good answers to some of those challenges, right? So that could explain it. But he did seem kind of blindsided by much of what. Warren was you would imagine he would have practiced and practiced and practiced and worked with people and do the thing that these politicians do, which is come up with a, a joke or a way to distract it or a way to honestly apologize. And he seemed as if he, these challenges about the sexual harassment issues, about stop and frisk, like he was hearing them for the first time. Right, right. There was a New Yorker article that gave some color to what those NDAs probably conceal. It sounds like he's going to release a few of them, but I don't know whether there's more, but it just sounds like he clearly is from the Mad Men era of yeah. you know sexual impropriety. And so the kinds of things he said, again, there's no allegation for anything he's done in, no. in the Me Too sense, which is certainly good and compares favorably with the president who's trailing, I think, 19 allegations of sexual assault. This is utterly asymmetric warfare here. The fact that we have to concern ourselves with Bloomberg's bad jokes, where the president has managed to get off scot-free. I mean, we're now recording this on the day that Harvey Weinstein was just found guilty of some degree of rape, and it wasn't the highest charge on which he was indicted, but he's still facing, it seems, a lot of jail time for what yeah. happened today. And Trump is a character like Weinstein, if these allegations about him are true, or at least damn close. We're not talking about bad jokes. So it's crazy that the Democrats are... The debate was, as many of us tweeted, like a circular firing squad. I mean, basically, everyone was quickly rendering everyone else unelectable. And that's what I'm worried about on our side, that we could just get to the general election with Whoever the candidate is, this is somebody who has to function by ethics and political norms that don't translate at all across the aisle, and yet there's no way of transcending this basic asymmetry. 
So, so let's take this one step up. Isn't this the stupidest way to choose a leader? Yeah. To have a, a debate? I mean, you know, it, it's, it's what people do. People like seeing fighting. But debates demonstrate the ability to memorize good lines, to be good at interrupting, to be very fast on your feet, you know, to be, to be savage in a certain way. I, I've heard people say we really want a good debater to come out from this, this sequence of democratic debates so they could be a good debater against Trump. And it, it seems ridiculous. What a terrible way to choose a leader. Yeah. You know, I, 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 t- I, tend, I tend to have a libertarian streak, but I got to say, if, if, if I was in charge, I would, I would, you know, ban debates at the political stage. No more debates. People should, be, should speak, should get interviewed. They should be discuss, discuss their policies and everything. But this mano a mano, you know, demonstration of your, of your basically combat ability is so grossly unrelated to what you'd want in a yeah. president. No, I agree. You know, we, yeah. we, we, we don't do that for anything else we value. If you're looking for a swim coach. You don't have them debate other swim coaches. You don't have university presidents debated out. Only for this. The problem with debates, which I've long worried about, is that the way to win a debate is to get a big laugh at your opponent's expense. If you can do that, you have won no matter what else happens in the debate. It does reward any kind of comic timing or you know, a semblance of comic timing, given the lackluster performances of the kinds of people who tend to find themselves on those stages. But yeah, if you can get off a good line, you win. Yep. So it, it has no relationship to your qualifications for the office. I think there's one thing. So you asked me about Sanders, and I think it's something I, I should clarify because yeah. I noticed some comments in response to the last podcast. So I believe I said last time around that I thought Sanders is unelectable, which I noticed provoked some howls of displeasure. And I think I also wondered whether or not it might be preferable to have a billionaire self-fund his campaign, you know, i.e. Bloomberg, and then be beholden to no one. And that that might be better than the, the normal situation where politicians perpetually have their hands out and get entangled with special interests. And I remember you countered that in the case of Bernie, we're talking about small donations, not special interests. And then I yeah. further said that I wondered whether this just made him beholden to the leftist mob. And so some people interpreted this as my expressing a preference for aristocracy or oligarchy over democracy. So I think I should clarify that. My paramount concern here is that we get Trump out of office for reasons that I have not been shy about stating. And so my concern with Bernie being captured by his audience is that he may be unable, I I think he's frankly unable, to tack to the middle in a credible way in the general election. And therefore, I think he's just bound to lose to Trump. I mean, I know we have polls that show him beating Trump in some key states, but in the last few days, this has changed a little bit. But you know, up until a few days ago, he has not experienced the extremely uncharitable vetting that he's going to get hour by hour in the general election. And so, I mean, we're now seeing videos of him, his you know, recent trip to the Soviet Union, where you know, they, their cultural institutions and their subways seem so much better than our own. This is at the height of the Cold War. We're seeing articles where you know, he's blaming us for the hostage crisis in Iran and blaming Carter as a warmonger. You can find him looking completely out to lunch with respect to our foreign enemies. And he also can't say how he's going to pay for anything. And as the price tag for his promises goes up into the tens of trillions of dollars. I mean, literally, he, 
the 60 Minutes interview last night suggested that he was you know, about to cut a check for a minimum of $30 trillion over the next 10 years, but it was probably more like $50 trillion and could give absolutely no account, no credible account of how he could pay for this. And this is just the beginning. This is like the first 48 hours of him looking like he's going to be the candidate. I'm just worried that he's actually unelectable. That's saying nothing about my attitude toward democracy or even, you know, Sanders himself. It's just, I'm just worried that promoting him is guaranteeing four more years of Trump. I think some of that might, might be true. I mean, one thing to realize is if we choose any other name, Warren, Biden, Mayor Pete, we could play the same game, right? We could, you could easily list all sorts of problems this person has. Not to the same degree. Elected. No, I don't, I don't well, see it. Well, Bloomberg, I think, functions by a different physics because he, whatever his flaws are, Trump's much worse on exactly those points. And then you just have to sort of pick your billionaire. Yeah, but a lot of Democrats might refuse to play the right. game, pick your billionaire yeah. and just stay yeah. home. Yeah, that's the real liability with Bloomberg. With Mayor Pete or um, Klobuchar, I think. You, you, oh, God, I don't, don't get me. I mean. I don't know if you know this, but Mayor Pete is gay. I don't know if you've been following the news. Oh, well, he's gay. And let he's me rethink married. this. And, my and, whole political and calculus. I actually, and I actually think that that is going to be a pretty serious liability, more, more than Sanders' Judaism, which I think will actually cut into him a bit. Yeah, I think that Judaism is a non-issue or close to it. I think we touched that last time. I think it's, yeah, that wouldn't be a fatal issue. And I, and I, I don't know about the homophobia variable, but the branding issue, I mean, just the word socialism, whatever he may mean by it, I think it's fatal. It's literally like running as a pedophile, where you have to then say, no, 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 it's not pedophile as yeah. you know. You say, I know you've seen pedophiles in the movies, but the moment you're having to explain this word, you're losing. Maybe millennials and uh, Gen Z are kind of out of touch with actually awful associations with the concept of socialism, but... They, they are. When they think socialism, they think Denmark. And, 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 Bernie, and Bernie's honest. He says, when I say socialism, I mean Denmark. And, you know, Denmark, there, there are arguments as to whether this could extend to the American model, but, but that's what he's talking about. But the truth is, when you look at his history, it's not so clear. If you go back far enough, he's looking pretty red, right? I, I think that's fair enough, but you got to... So one of the things you mentioned was his comment on the Iran crisis with the hostages and everything. And you got it exactly right. But what is this, 40 years ago? Right. It, it's a long time. But he would need some credible account for how he's changed and take him on the issue of Israel, right? It's like he has the sort of self-hating, masochistic, moral confusion around the politics there. He's got genuine anti-Semites and theocrats in his inner circle. I mean, let someone like Linda Sarsour, right, who are advising him on these issues and literally functioning as his surrogates in certain cases. He celebrates these people on social media. I mean, Linda Sarsour, I mean, this is like having, you know, Farrakhan as one of your advisors. I mean, it's, it's just completely clueless about the, the moral and political asymmetries here. So, so you're, making, you're making a moral case. Let me shift it to political case. Do you think right. this is going to hurt him? It, well, it certainly should hurt him. And I think it would hurt him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think in the general election, I mean, people will be completely freaked out by it. the idea that someone like Linda Sarsour could have conceivably wind up in somebody's cabinet. This is every bit as bad as anything Trump is capable of, right? It's just, it's nuts. Let me offer a different perspective on something you said. You said, you know, 
it doesn't seem like he's going to be able to adequately move towards the center. And I think you're right. But I think the advantage of Sanders that, say, Mayor Pete doesn't have and Biden, well, Biden might have, but the advantage of Sanders is he might actually take away Trump voters. He may take away people who voted for Trump because they feel that they, they hate the system. They feel screwed. They, mm. they feel capitalism has, has left them, you know, le- they've been left out of, of everything good about America. And I think, I think Sanders could, could take Trump voters away in a way that a lot of other people on the stage would not be able to. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't really, I mean, I guess, I guess it's conceivable, but then those are some pretty confused voters. And I don't know how many of them there could conceivably be. I mean, I think Warren, I mean, just the amount of daylight there is between Warren and Sanders around the, just the word socialism and the fact that she can just say she's a capitalist and, you know, she, she's not tempted to brand herself as a socialist, even though her economic policies are in many cases indistinguishable from his. I think that's a crucial difference. And, I, you know, she's not going to get it, but. You know, Sonny, I, I, I agree with it. I, I, with you. I'm not, I, I can't explain what happened. I don't think anybody can, but I always thought Warren in some way strictly dominated Sanders. Like everything yeah. Sanders did, she did better. She, she had, yeah. to, you know, a lot of his good ideas, but she didn't brand herself as a socialist. She's incredibly wonky and smart. I mean, you may disagree with her, but she's, but she's, she's very in the weeds. She's very personable face to face. And then for some reason, some combination of sexism or bad luck or, or I don't know. Well, she did one stupid thing, which I don't think Sanders has done. I mean, she got pulled into the wokeness to a degree that Sanders has. I mean, Sanders is just still just hitting the point of class warfare yeah. relentlessly, and which, you know, Warren hits as well. But Warren got pulled into the intersectional Michigas. I mean, she literally tweeted at one point, I think the tweet was like, black, cis, and trans women are the backbone of our democracy. I believe that's verbatim, right? So there's some charitable gloss you can put on that, but the fact that that gets summarized in everyone's brain as black trans women are the backbone of our democracy, all 17 of them, there's just no reason for her to do that, right? She's pandering to a constituency so small, it's so short-sighted, and seems calculated to alienate half of America. But but that's not, I, I, I remember the tweet you're talking about, but that's not what happened to her. I mean... Well, well, no, but I do think that's a fatal flaw in her campaign. I don't know. I don't actually know what happened to her in terms of what caused her to lose her momentum this time in this last round. If she were ahead right now and we were talking about her as the front runner, I'd be worried that she's also unelectable for reasons that are slightly different than Sanders, but just as concerning. So who is electable? I think if Bloomberg could complete a string of sane and seemingly honest sentences in defense of his record, I think... You, you think all those Elizabeth Warren voters would, and Bernie Sanders voters move to Bloomberg? Everyone who doesn't want Trump will eventually have to move to whoever is in the general election for the Democrats. And I just think once there's a single candidate, you know, any of them stands a chance of solidifying everyone's understandable concern about Trump. I think if you can't energize half of America around just that single variable, just getting this guy out of office, then it's hopeless. But I think things change once there's just one of them. The moderates are split between 
Biden and Klobuchar and, yeah. and Buttigieg and Bloomberg. And if it could magically be Klobuchar, I think, yeah. you know, that she stands a chance. It's just like everyone would just she, reset. She does, stand, she does stand a chance. You know yeah. the person I miss? I miss Cory Booker. I, I've, I've, I've never met him. I've heard great things about him. And he seems like yeah. a gracious, intelligent, broad-minded person. He's, uh, yeah. he, he seems, you know, genuinely likable in a way. I don't find any of these people. And, and also what he says makes sense. And he seems rational and pragmatic and all good things. Yeah. And I could never figure out why he didn't translate better on stage or on television. I mean, yeah. so much of this is just the way people speak. And, and now we're back to the debates and, and how crappy they are. Yeah. It's a performance. But I, I really do think it's got to be possible to backfoot Trump in a debate. It's not yeah. too much to hope that in the general election, he could be consequentially embarrassed. The, I think the best person to do that, again, it's just awful that Bloomberg doesn't have more natural gifts in this regard. Because if he had a great stage presence, he has the perfect biography to mm -hmm. go after Trump from. Yeah. And, and, and I've been kind of ragging on him the last episode in this one, too. But you know, one thing about Bloomberg is he actually does a lot of good. He gives a lot of mm -hmm. money to charity. He gives, you know, over, I think, a billion dollars to Johns Hopkins, money for regarding uh, working on climate change and gun control and helping other Democrats. He's, he's yeah. you know, a mass, unlike Trump, uh, he's a massively generous person. No, I know. I mean, that, that's why the juxtaposition is so um, invidious. But Sam, speak, speaking of juxtapositions, do parents matter? We, oh yeah, so we we, we, we got a we question do, about this. Yeah, we, we agree. We agree to do sudden transitions. So this is yes. this is by the way from okay. Proxima Ratio, and that's the name of on a, Twitter. Yes, name of one yeah. of Sam's thirty million Twitter followers, and and he raised the question. And there's been a bit of discussion online about the idea of whether or not parenting matters. Yeah. So and this could have been seeded by our friend Steve Pinker yep. circulating a Boston Globe article about a meta-analysis of all of the studies that have interrogated this question, whether parental influence really determines anything in the space of how kids grow into adulthood. This thesis was brought to the world's attention, I think, mostly by Judith Rich Harris. Did you know her? I, I, uh, she, she, she's passed away, uh, yeah. unfortunately. I okay. actually, um, I edit a, a journal, Behavioral and Brain Sciences, where we we publish controversial and theoretically interesting things, and then dozens and dozens of people write commentaries on it. And I, I contacted her after her book and asked whether she would contribute to our journal, which we usually don't make invitations, but this was an exception. And she was very nice, but she said her health would not, would not allow it. Yeah, so her thesis was that for virtually everything we care about, the human mind, the human personality, the human ability, is basically 50% genetic, more or less, and then 50% environment. But environment, crucially from the point of view of mom and dad, doesn't seem to be anything they're doing. It seems to be the influence of peer group and other you know, inscrutable variables. It seems to absolve parents of much responsibility for who their kids become, apart from Correct me if I'm wrong here, but this has been summarized in my recollection around the heuristic that I mean, you, you can screw your kids up, right? If you're an awful parent, you can harm them. But if you're basically a decent 
human being treating your kids well, there's not much you can do to improve them, change them, make them who they're going to become apart from having given them your genes. I think that's a fair summary. The research that's been done is typically within parents within a sort of normal range. We look at parents who adopt kids. We look at, at, at kids who are adopted into other families. We look at siblings and so on. And we don't tend to, it's not clear that these findings generalize to truly abusive parents. But of, mm-hmm. of course, one of Judith, Judith Harris's major points, which is so profound, is it is a truism that, you know, parents who love reading have kids who love reading. Parents who are violent have violent kids. Kids resemble their parents in, in every one of, of countless ways. And this is obvious, and it is true, and it is important. But the mistake everybody makes is to say, well, this is because of parenting. But then it turns right. out that when you look at, say, adoption studies, you know, if, if, if I'm a big reader, and my wife is a big reader, and we have a baby, and then the baby ends up in another family, the baby will grow up to be a big reader. And, uh, you know, to, to, to some reasonable likelihood. And so you find yeah. out that parents have an enormous influence on their kids, but it is primarily genetic. And you have, you know, roughly, that it's, it's always roughly 50% of a genetic influence. And then the rest is environmental. But, but it's environmental like your peer group. It's environmental like is there lead in the environment? It's environmental like do you get into a car crash? What's your, what's your school like? It doesn't seem that, that parents have much of an influence on how, on, on, at least in what right. we look at, like their kids' personality and their kids' intelligence. Right. So knowing this, don't you think you can game the system a little bit in that understanding just how important a peer group is, if you see your kids getting in with a bad peer group, if you see this early enough, you could intervene, you could, you could switch schools, you could yeah. push them in some more benign direction. But though, to be fair to parents, long before developmental psychologists showed up, parents were often exquisitely sensitive to the idea that your kid should run with a good crowd and not a bad crowd. Right, right. I mean, in some way, and this is a point that Harris makes and that Steve Pinker makes too, and it's a really important point. In some way, this is very important. It tells us a lot. It sort of tells us a lot of scientists. But in another way, it changes nothing. Because any decent person wants to give their kid a loving, rich, positive environment with stimulation and, and good schools and care, not necessarily because they believe this will shape the kid in some way, but because they love the kid. And if you love somebody, yeah. you want to give them, you know, a great life. Steve Pinker makes an analogy with, you know, spouses, which is, you know, you presumably want to treat your wife nicely, even though you might be aware this isn't going to change your personality. You want to treat her nicely because A, you love her, and B, you want her to love you. Yeah, it just it flips it to your actual priority, which is you want to have good relationships with your kids. Yes, right. So, like, well, what what maximizes the possibility of that? You know, it's everything that's benign and loving and supportive, but it does have an effect. When I take this thesis seriously, when I look at my concern about any specific thing, like an academic interest that is indiscernible in one of my daughters, say, right? Like, yeah. you know, why isn't daughter X, you know, more into whatever science? Is there something that I should be doing more of? You know, should I be more overbearing on this, on this front? And 
it does make me feel like I shouldn't be in that game at all. That's right. I am who I am, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up however I show up in conversations on that topic, and I'm making every effort to make sure they're in good schools and they're surrounded by good information. But it's just in terms of micromanaging their interests or having any kind of judgment at all about they're being more interested in one thing versus another thing that I find more interesting. It does give me a reason to more or less unplug yeah. from that. Yeah. It, I mean, you, you have, we, actually, we, we both have more than one child. And the line, which I think is true, is when you have one kid, you are often an extreme environmentalist. You think you're shaping every aspect of the kid. Mm. And then you get a second kid, and typically your second kid is nothing like the first kid, even though it's the same environment. And suddenly right. you're abruptly reminded of genetics, of the sort of random coin toss of how the genes are shuffled. When you have these two kids and you treat them, you know, you try to treat them pretty much the same in the same household, the same environment, and they're so different. And, and, and I agree, it is to some extent liberating. In general, I, I, I'm a developmental psychologist and people often ask me, so what special insights did that give me in raising kids? And the main insight it gave me for raising kids is enabling me to chill the fuck out. I could just, mm. I, I, I realized that sleeping in the same bed, sleeping in a crib, this, that, this, that, didn't make much of a difference. Right. And, you know, you wanted to, you wanted to make, you, you wanted to ha have your kids have a good time to be happy and have a rich environment. But you realize either this stuff doesn't matter, or at least nobody knows whether or not it matters. I mean, anything that can make a parent of the sort I tend to be just relax on those kinds of issues, I mean, just to kind of give up the illusion of control, that seems like a happy byproduct of this thesis. Actually, this relates to another topic that we were urged to discuss at some point. This David Brooks article on the breakdown of the nuclear family made the rounds in the last week. And it's interesting how this connects up with the omnipresent political problem of wealth inequality yes. now. In brief, his thesis was, you know, the nuclear family was a, a highly unnatural arrangement that really only existed in full flower for about 15 years between 1950 and 1965 in America. And then it began to erode for for all kinds of reasons. And we are far more naturally disposed to thrive in situations where there are extended families and neighbors that are, you know, far more intrusive than we could ever imagine neighbors, you know, being today, where, you know, like your neighbors are in some ways co-parenting your kids, right? You know, they're chastising them when they misbehave, you know, when they've yeah. come over to their you, house. You mentioned and, Mad Men before, and I remember seeing in a party where right. one kid is just yeah. doing something naughty, and then one of the adults, just like a neighbor, just wallops the kid. Yeah, right. You don't hit your children nowadays, but you used to be able to hit other people's children. I mean, it's crazy to even think about, but what was your take on this article? I, I, I liked it. I, it. It sort of spoke to me personally. When I I have this big, close, I was raised in Montreal, but I also this big, close Boston family. Who I, I love them so much, and, and I, they gave me so much happiness being with them. But they would always, like, they would stay in tight contact. They would, you know, live on the same street. And I would feel when I was a kid, I'd hate that. I want to go live in New York. I want to live in some, in California, get married, have kids, independence. And that's great when you're young and you're healthy and you got money. but 
big families and, and, and extended neighborhoods and the sort of thing that Brooks talks about have real advantages when you have kids because it's really tough mm-hmm. to raise kids with an extended family or when you're sick or when you're old. You know, we, you can still see this in some, old, in some old situation comedies where you have a family and upstairs yeah, the grandparents live and maybe right. you have an aunt and uncle who live there too. And we don't do that anymore, at least not in, in, in the cultures I live in. And we're missing a lot. I think that I, I was convinced by Brooks's article that as a sort of, um, we should have a more heterogeneous family structure in America. There should be more options opening up. I think, you know, cases of group living and extended families living under the same roof have real strengths and real advantages, particularly for people, like you said, who, you know, who aren't billionaires, who, uh, who aren't uh, 20 years and healthy and single. The connection of wealth inequality is interesting because Brooks was saying that the only way a nuclear family really works and has worked for you know, now many decades is if you're essentially wealthy. Yes. You essentially purchase the surrogates for extended family rather than bring in the grandparents. That's you're right. bringing in nannies and after school coaches and yep. you know, just all, yeah, all yeah, of the stuff. That, you have therapists for when you're lonely. Yeah. You're purchasing the labor of people. And actually, Caitlin Flanagan, who's been on the podcast, uh-huh. she wrote a piece in the, in the Atlantic, it's now probably six or seven or more years ago, that caused quite a stir. It was about the reliance of women on nannies, essentially. It's like your ability to thrive in the workforce as a, an empowered woman is in large measure, entirely derivative of your ability to pay another woman to not raise her own kids, but to raise yours. It's a a very hard-hitting piece on our kind of Gosford uh, uh, Park-level, you know, upstairs-downstairs reality. You know, so she got a lot of heat for that. But it does seem symptomatic of the nature of our economy. It's undeniable that the great thing about having money is that it allows you to free up your time to make more money or do whatever it is you want to do, and you can purchase the time of others to do the things that conflict with that project. This is the great, I say great thing, I mean, it remains to be seen whether it's actually a great or even good thing for society at large, but the great thing if you are a radical individualist or if you are a couple in a nuclear family who wants to go on vacation, you know, the kind of atomized selves that Brooks is, is worrying about, that it requires wealth to bring yeah. it off. You know? Yeah. And, and so if you want to have all of that and you don't have wealth, you'd have an extended family. You have a lot of people living under their own roof. But of course, the trade-off is, you know, it's very nice to have all of these people taking care of my baby, but I got to take care of their baby. It's nice. Right. The, the, the communal meals are great, but I got to do a lot of cooking. And people who really prioritize work and career, that's what falls by the wayside. And I'm not sure if that, you know, it, it's, I, I, I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all fits all answer here. I just like the idea of that alternative being around. I like the idea of an alternative being that, you know, you're, mm-hmm. I don't, I just, and, and I'm sure some people do it. I just don't think it's that popular to have a couple with kids and you get together with two other couples with kids and you live in, in a big house. Or you, you bring in your, your, your grandparents, you, know, you bring in your parents and they help you raise your kids and you've got aunts and uncles and they come in and you all live in a big house together. Right, right. 
Does that, does that, <laughs> yeah. does that sound fun for you or does it sound creepy for you? I have to admit, I feel totally deracinated from what you know, Brooke says is our very recent past. The idea of growing up that way, I mean, I did not grow up in anything like that yeah. situation, but just having a, a huge family around, you know, it could be great. You know, if you imagine great people, yeah. then I really missed out. But if you imagine real, real, real ambient people. level of yeah. neurosis that becomes intolerable from which there's no escape, it's a different picture. So, yeah. 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 I think we had, we sort of were talking about different things to talk about. And there's one, one other topic we wanted to drop, as it were. Mm. <laughs> this is unusually personal, but largely influenced by your writing, but also mm. by uh, reading, um, actually listening to a podcast with Michael Pollan. Right. I have become increasingly interested in LSD. And many people have said, since I seem to be a failure as a meditator, I'm never going to get it to work for me, that I think you have said LSD is a shortcut. You know, you could do it and then boom, instead of training, you tell me if I'm misquoting you, but instead of training for mm. 20 years in intensive meditative retreats, you just take the tab and then, you know, in tw 12 hours later, you're there. Well, yeah, you're misremembering me. Is that a George Bushism? You're miss, you're miss, miss, you're miss, miss, yeah, oh, I, I miss George Bush now. Yeah, what a benign time that was. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not quite that. I mean, the thing that, first, have you taken any psychedelics ever? Yes, I took, the I took mushrooms in Amsterdam. And it actually didn't give me hallucinations or altered state. It just made me extremely nice and kind of mm. extroverted. It made me really care about other people and really delight in their happiness and gave me great sort of universal warmth. Right. It's very nice. Right. What sounds like a, a modest dose of mushrooms does not exhaust the possibilities there. I would liken a bigger dose of mushrooms to be just like LSD in, in the prospect that you will huh. experience something totally novel. I think there are reasons to prefer mushrooms to LSD. Really? Yeah. I mean, just the time course is one. I mean, mushrooms last about four to six hours. LSD is more like 10 to 12 hours. So it's just in terms of organizing your life around it, it's easier to deal with a higher dose mushroom trip than an LSD trip. And they take you pretty similar places. It's been a while since I've taken LSD, but I mean, not identical, but they're pretty close. I mean, I think certainly the possibility for lasting benefits from several of these drugs, mm -hmm. but the really indispensable thing is not that they permanently change you, but that they permanently convince you that certain kinds of very desirable changes are possible. Yeah. It shows you the grass that is greener on the other side of the fence and then you're back down in your little yard again, eventually, and you can't convince yourself that you didn't see what you saw. So then things like meditation and other um, behavioral changes or conceptual changes to your, your life suddenly make a lot more sense or even become a kind of imperative. You have to figure out what it is you're doing with your attention moment to moment that's denying you access to the reality you just saw you know, a mere yeah. two hours ago. So you're putting it like a, a close friend of mine put it, which is that, that you know, he, he saw it under LSD. He saw the world pretty much as it really is, and as best he can with his limited perceptual experiences, but as it really is, uncorrupted by all of his appetites and desires and biases and wishes. And then when you get out of it, now you're back to where you started, but you, but you remember what it was like, and you could aspire to get there in other means. 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put it quite so starkly because it's not that you're seeing the world as it is. So that the experience that you have on LSD or on mushrooms, it doesn't strike me as the truly uncontaminated normative experience to which you would you know okay. want to get back because there are things you can't do in the space you know if you're at the peak of an acid trip or the peak of a mushroom trip you can't function in all kinds of normal ways that you want to be able to function we couldn't be doing this podcast yeah you couldn't follow the train of this conversation yes and I'd, do you want to do a future podcast both of us on mushrooms okay how would that go over we can do that we have to get the dose right but <laughs> So the center of the bullseye, just as a matter of soteriology, I mean, what is the highest possibility of psychological freedom right? and how to get there? I mean, that's the question. Whatever that highest possibility is, it has to be compatible with being able to drive a car and have a conversation and, you know, parent your kids and all of that. And so you can't have your eyes rolled up in the back of your head, just overcome by ecstasy. But having experiences like that, where you're you're more or less rendered catatonic by bliss, that at least proves to you that that kind of bliss is possible. Yeah. And so that has implications for you, so the ordinary unhappiness you experience throughout your day. But I do think that the the goal of meditation, say, it's not to recapitulate the highs you experience on psychedelics, but there are things you can experience on psychedelics that do inform what the goal of a practice like meditation is. I mean, so for instance, you know, the idea that there's something about the sense of self, the conventional sense of self, that is illusory and that illusion can be penetrated. And, you know, on the other side of it, you have a much truer and happier experience of consciousness in the present moment. There are things that you're, that I could say about you know, the nature of consciousness that are analogous to what your friend said. Like, yeah. this is really seeing the truth and it's not going to change. And then the mystery is, you know, how is it that you ever overlook it even for a second? There are things like that that you can experience on any of these drugs and certainly in meditation. The distinction for me is there's a recognition of the intrinsic properties of consciousness that, you know, consciousness is intrinsically without self. The sense of self that there's a thinker in the middle of the mind, some kind of homunculus in there that is making decisions, that can be cut through and yet consciousness remains. That's recognizing something about consciousness, no matter what you could be aware of, no matter what its contents are. And you can recognize that in ordinary consciousness, like podcast consciousness, or you can recognize it, you know, at the height of the hierophany of LSD or psilocybin. But the difference with LSD and psilocybin or any other psychedelic is that the contents of consciousness tend to be radically changed, right? So you have this phantasmagorical explosion of perceptual change, which is certainly interesting and certainly worth experiencing, but ultimately it can't be a stable place yeah. of personal change because you can't function in that space. And those changes per se don't actually change this fundamental insight into the context of consciousness, which is that it's selfless, say. So there's broader issues to talk about here, and maybe in, in some other time we can talk about the metaphysics of self. But just a quick question. We're mm -hmm. talking about benefits, any right. risks, any costs? 
Well, actually, I just released a conversation on um, the Waking Up app on this topic. I spoke with this woman, Francoise Bourzat, who's done a lot of work, mostly with mushrooms, but many other psychedelics. And she's been a guide and you know studied with lots of people and is endorsed by many people who are doing research in this space. So she's a, a very informed person on the phenomenology side of the experience, as opposed to the research that's going on, you know, in terms of the brain basis for these experiences. So I, I would urge you to listen to that conversation and approach it with the kind of the serious attention to set and setting and the other variables that she speaks about there. But yeah, I mean, the downside is that it, as attentive as you can be to the variables that would give you some illusion of control over this experience, there is actually no true control of the experience. On some level, it is the spin of a roulette wheel. Yeah. So you can have a very, very positive or very, very challenging experience. Francoise is more sanguine about this than I am, or certainly than I used to be. I actually don't know what I think about so-called bad trips now, but I remember you had a description, I think, in your waking up book that sounded yeah. quite grim. I had my share of bad trips back in the day. And on Francois's account, you know, given the right guidance, I could have been led to see the silver lining in these experiences. And um, I don't actually doubt that, but still, I don't know if I would sign up for those experiences, even yeah. knowing that I was going to be able to see some silver lining in them. It really is just a neurological beatdown. And I think it potentially comes at some cost. I think physiologically, there's no reason to be concerned that these right. drugs are bad for your brain, specifically LSD and psilocybin. You're nowhere near a lethal dose when you're at the most heroically active dose, whereas you can't say that of almost any other drug you take, including Advil or Tylenol or anything else. Or, or my, my drug of choice, which is bourbon. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So the effective dose of bourbon is rather <laughs> close to the lethal dose of bourbon. Yes. And I'm a fan of bourbon. But that's not the concern. The concern is you could have some experience that is you know, psychologically painful enough that yes. you would regret having it. I would say that the chance of doing that, certainly if you did it in the company of any trained guide or just experienced person who was just there to keep you company and keep you safe, I think the chance that you would have an experience like that where you would regret the whole project is pretty low. Okay. In general, I'm very supportive of the idea that you would do this, but I just would urge you to do it as rationally as possible. So huh. well, That's good. Yeah. Okay. Should we take one more one more topic from one of your Twitter followers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you have got, something in front of you? I, I actually do. This cool. guy, Andrew Stevens, raised the issue of Peter Singer's recent deplatforming mm. in New Zealand. And I have, I have a, a feeling that we're going to be in agreement on this. Peter Singer was, I think, scheduled to give a talk at, of all places, a casino. And they just said at the end, he, oh, he's too controversial. His views on disability is too controversial. And I'll just tell you my quick take because it is a quick take. They have every legal right to do this. It's, you know, it's a, they, they can invite who they want and disinvite who they want. But it's, it, should, it should really embarrass them. Peter Singer is a true philosopher. He's a brilliant man. He works to make the world a better place. And in the course of this, he thinks he's a utilitarian and he considers the implications and deals with some very hard moral problems. 
And so, and some of these will make people uncomfortable. But, but he is as far away as you can go from being a troll or a provocateur or, or a bad guy. So even putting aside one's feelings about deplatforming in general, inviting somebody, then disinviting them, this is a, a, a shameful case. Yeah, I think this was in New Zealand, right? That's right. I mean, he's not just one of the most famous and influential living philosophers. He's from Australia. I don't know that what kind of points that wins him in New Zealand, but from down under, he is without question the most influential philosopher anyone can name. And he's getting deplatformed for the same issue that he raised. I mean, this now has got to be 25, 30 years right. or more that he's been dogged by this one thought experiment. Unlike most philosophers, too, his work is directly impacting the world in inspiring people to alleviate human and animal suffering. That's exactly right. You know, most philosophers can only dream of having the impact that he's had. I mean, he's, you know, almost single handedly inspired the effect of altruism movement. I mean, I know there are some other philosophers like Will McCaskill and Toby yep. Ord who kicked it off, but they've been directly inspired by and kind of mentored by Singer. So it's just obtuse to think that he's a good candidate for yep. disinvitation. And part of what makes it embarrassing is he's there, of course, to talk about his major focus over the last many years, which is alleviating world poverty and effective right. altruism and how to make the world a better place. Though, I think, I, I think maybe, again, we would agree. Suppose he's there to talk about the, the rights of parents to abort their, abort their babies, maybe under some very, very difficult situations to, to kill or to allow to die a baby with, with serious problems that cause the baby agony, that maybe gives it no right to flourish. These are very difficult and uncomfortable questions. And I'd really rather have, I really want to hear what a smart person like Peter Singer has to say about it. There's nothing, yeah. there's nothing mischievous or cruel here. It's not some sort of, you know, Jonathan Swift thing about let's murder babies. These are real medical issues that nobody thinks are easy. And I think Singer deserves just nothing but praise for trying to deal with them in a serious way. Well, I mean, maybe we can get ourselves defenestrated and hounded for the rest of our lives by performing the same thought experiment. But if I'm not mistaken, it was like the case of a baby born with anencephaly or a clear case of a either insentient or excruciating and short life. And what he's arguing against is this, let's keep this baby alive at all costs, moral anchoring that one gets from religion, essentially. The idea yeah. that doing anything to facilitate the ending of a life that is bound to be intolerable, the idea that that is a sin, this religious dogmatism on the one side that's preventing us from having a conversation about what the ethics of the situation actually are. And Singer is yeah. simply arguing that if you're going to alleviate pure misery in this case, actually alleviating the misery is, by definition, the compassionate thing to do. And what's mystifying is some of the same people who are shocked by Singer raising this issue are entirely comfortable with abortion, abortion under any circumstance. Right. As if there's this issue, that there's this fact of enormous metaphysical consequence when, when the baby is born. I mean, there are differences, but they tend to be a matter of degree, not a matter of kind. And so in some way, I would understand somebody who says, 
Singer's views are appalling because I think that, you know, once the zygote is formed, doing anything to it, any act of abortion is an act of horrible murder. So Singer's yeah, a murderer and you know, more of a murderer than any abortionist. That in some way at least has the veneer of, of consistency. But someone mm. who's cheerfully pro-choice and then goes nuts at Singer is very confused. I mean, he's got, again, I don't know the exact apologies to Peter if we're distorting the edge cases that got him in trouble, but it's like he's a committed utilitarian, and so he's left with having to do the math on cases that seem to disregard the sanctity of human yes. life versus any other kind of life. Like if we have a lifeboat and we have to decide whether to toss out a child that has a cognitive ability below you know, the smartest orangutan, Right. And so it's a choice between an orangutan or a specific human child. Well, it really is a question of, you know, which is more competent to have a good life. And if you judge it's the orangutan, well, then the orangutan is more important than the child. Yeah. I, I would toss out the orangutan under all circumstances, but that's, <laughs> but, that's for, but that's due to other factors involving. Why do you hate orangutans? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I didn't think our discussion yeah. would end with precisely that Listen, question. Listen, orangutans Th- are, are rapists. First of all, there's a reason <laughs> to toss out the orangutan. He may well rape somebody in that lifeboat. Well, there, there you go. That, that <laughs> is, you know, what, those Did, people who defend orangutans, why are you pro-rape? Did I give you enough cover there? I, I don't know how this is going to go yeah. when people listen to it. Yeah. Uh, thank, you, Andrew, all, thank you, Andrew Stevens, right. for putting us in this situation. All orangutans are rapists or aspiring rapists. Well, that's a, a fine place to end. Thanks for uh, all of the people who gave you these great questions for us. Yeah, yeah. And thank you, Paul. It's fun. I'll, um, I'll get you next time with other topics. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me.